Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Jacob Nathan, CEO and co-founder at Epoch Biodesign. They're on a mission to scale and industrialize biology to solve the world's biggest climate challenges, starting with an enzyme that eats plastic and converts it to industrial chemicals. Also, you might notice that I'm not Jason. This is Cody Sims, Jason's partner at MCJ. I did today's interview with Jacob at Epoch Biodesign, and you'll hear me take on episodes here and there going forward. I was looking forward to this conversation with Jacob because plastics are quite literally everywhere. Hundreds of millions of tons of plastics are produced every year. And in the big scheme of things, this is a new phenomenon. Plastics weren't mass-produced until after World War II. That's just one human lifetime ago. And while we've gotten really good at creating plastic, we have not gotten good at removing plastic. Plastic recycling levels are quite low, and the vast majority of plastic that's created ends up incinerated in landfills or in our natural ecosystems like the ocean. Plastics are a byproduct of the fossil fuel industry. They contribute significantly to the value of a barrel of oil, they create considerable emissions when produced, and they release carbon into the atmosphere when they are end-of-life via incineration. So while plastics are a key building block of our modern world, they're also very problematic. And to me, they're a metaphor for the transition we're going through generally right now as we create a decarbonized world. Plastics are part of, I don't know, modernization 1.0. They've helped society thrive up to a point. But when you factor in their externalities, they don't scale. We've hit a ceiling. And now it's time for innovators like Jacob to show us that there's a better way of doing things. We have a great discussion about the role of plastics in society, their impact on climate change, how Epoch's technology works, and how Epoch plans to leverage modern compute power to unlock other biological innovations in the future. Jacob, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. 
You know, I am so interested to learn about what you're building at uh, Epic Biodesign because it is, you're taking an approach that I think is one of applying deep technology to a problem that is, that we're swimming in, frankly. And, and then yet your technology potentially can solve other huge problems as well. And so, you know, I, I think we're going to approach this conversation almost like peeling layers of an onion. But what I'd love to start with is just the space of plastics. You know, the thing that always kind of really hits me upside the head is that when I think about it, plastics are really only one human lifetime old, right? Like plastics as a mass production uh, phenomenon really only started happening post-World War II. And so, you know, you think about like our grandparents or great-grandparents basically grew up in a world where plastics weren't a thing uh, and now they are literally everywhere. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, just setting the stage of what is going on today in the world of plastic production. What's the growth rate? Assume If nothing changes, like what kind of world are we going to find ourselves in with respect to plastic? Um, and just help us understand the, the scope and magnitude of the plastic problem. For sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'll start off by saying plastics are awesome, right? They've enabled so much of our modern lives, everything from sterilized medical equipment to, frankly, preventing food spoilage and figuring out, hey, if we put this, uh, this piece of food into this plastic packaging, then it's going to last way longer. We can make sure we get it to the consumer and reduce food waste. Plastics kind of have a bit of a funny origin. Um, you know, we see a lot of pictures today of kind of sea turtles, like wrapped in these things and all of our kind of favorite cuddly animals, right? Um, but actually plastics, uh, the very first one, um, Parkasine, was invented as a cheap replacement for uh, turtle shells and for, uh, for glasses, for spectacles, and a replacement for the ivory used in uh, billiard balls for, for snooker and, and, and other things as well. So we actually would have driven those animals to extinction far, far earlier um, if it wasn't for the invention of plastics. Um, but you're right. So the, these materials were kind of used in quite niche applications. Then kind of post-World War II, uh, a bunch of people realized, hey, we're expanding our, our kind of extraction and, and refinement of, of fossil carbon. And uh, we've suddenly got all these, these, these side products, things like uh, ethylene gas, and we, we should figure out how to make things out of those. Um, so polyethylene, um, which is kind of the, the most common plastic today, uh, I believe it was uh, Dow Chemical um, at the time or, or, or DuPont, one of them, um, they realized they could produce this at scale and it had tons of different applications. People love the convenience of kind of single use, taking things off the shelf and just throwing them in the bin. Um, and so throughout the 20th century, production absolutely exploded. And in the early 20th century, it's continued to explode. And uh, really the path we're on is, is one of uh, quadrupled 2015 levels by 2050, uh, which is really not a, not a particularly nice uh, prospect by any means. And, you know, we're actually still grappling with what that means for the world. So, you know, we talk about a world of plastic, right? Like, like you mentioned, we're literally swimming in this stuff. All of our favorite animals are getting caught up in it. Um, but that's not to mention the substantial climate impact that this is having, uh, both in terms of the CO2 emissions associated with, with production, with, with um, the kind of uh, management of the plastic life cycle, uh, but also looking at plastics uh, impact on our natural ecosystems and our Earth's kind of uh, natural carbon sinks as well, uh, which we're only really just beginning to understand. And potentially the kind of scariest part, and it's, it's quite kind of easy to, to go down this rabbit hole as well, um, is looking at the effects that plastics are having on human health, right? Um, there are recent reports of microplastics being found in 
the majority of blood samples uh, that they took in the study. And, you know, we don't even understand the impact this is beginning to have. So our use of plastic is absolutely exploding um, within the sort of fossil fuel industry. Look like uh, combustibles are going out of fashion. Everyone's buying electric cars. Um, you know, we're beginning to realize that, uh, frankly, it's just going to become cheaper to do that. So increasingly, people are saying, well, what can we do with uh, all of our previously invested assets in um, fossil extraction and refinement? And so they're looking towards non-combustibles like plastics, like chemicals, um, where we're seeing massive, massive growth over the coming decades. And do you expect, you know, if you look at the a barrel of oil, um, I don't know what value of a barrel of oil today is the chemical output of the oil as opposed to the energy output of the oil. But f- what I'm hearing you say is likely that the value of the chemical output on any given barrel of oil is likely to actually increase just due to the use of oil as energy hitting a decreasing turn over the coming couple decades, hopefully. Is that a, a, an appropriate assumption to make? Yes, exactly. So um Essentially, we're going to see a greater and greater fraction of, of, of that barrel or, or that kind of um, container of gas be used for, for plastics production uh, versus, yeah, being used for kind of direct energy production or as well kind of uh, fuel to put in your car. What's the recycling problem as it relates to plastic? You know, you hear that generally virgin plastic is cheaper and easier to make than recycled plastic. I assume some of that is just, again, because of the amount of infrastructure that's already created to harness the value from oil in these fossil feedstocks. Um, But help me understand why recycling plastics is so problematic today. Yeah. So when we talk about plastic, um, unfortunately, it's not just one type. We have a bunch of different types of plastics. They're used in all sorts of different applications. Uh, They're layered on top of each other. They're colored in weird and wonderful ways. And that makes it a real challenge to just take a mixed bag of lots of different types of plastic, you know, separate it from all the cardboard and the metal and the paper that you're putting in there, and then separate it again into individual streams of plastic. So that in and of itself is a challenge, right? Just, uh, you know, you've got your waste, now what do you do with it? So it varies by place to place, depending on the waste management infrastructure. Some countries have far better systems for doing this. Uh, some countries have uh, policy incentives to make sure that waste is collected and treated properly. Uh, many do not. Um, but it's just a really expensive process to take the stuff that goes into your recycling bin uh, to a sorting facility to then send it onto a recycling facility uh, and then sort everything into the individual streams required to make a a high quality feedstock to make new plastics. And the way we recycle today, if it even gets to that point, is the plastic is chopped up into lots of little uh, flakes. And it's then melted and extruded and then chopped up into these kind of pellets, which can then be uh, reformed to make new plastic products. And that's kind of the best case scenario, right? So when we recycle a plastic bottle, it's often not turned into a plastic bottle. Throughout that recycling process, the material is downgraded in quality. Um, The kind of molecular chains that make it up, they become shorter, they become weaker. You don't want to create a Coca-Cola bottle that's going to have uh, all all the Coca-Cola kind of uh, falling out of the side of it, right? Uh, So this stuff gets blended with new virgin plastic, usually in a 30% recycled, 70% virgin mix in order to make something that is of a high enough quality to put back on the shelf. So that's, that's your best case scenario. And a lot of the time, though, that plastic bottle gets converted into polyester fiber to be spun into a carpet or uh, a piece of sports clothing. And there's very, very little recycling for that kind of stuff. And um, so 
oftentimes you're looking at sort of a once around the recycling loop um, and then you're going back into a product which eventually is going to make its way into landfill or incineration. So it's incredibly expensive just to get the plastic there in the first place. But then you also have this technological challenge of creating a high enough uh, quality polymer to then use in the very same applications that, that your feedstock has come from. And so maybe then talk about so that plastic that can't be recycled. What does that end of life look like? So, you know, like you said, you're either burning it, putting it underground or sadly finding its way into the ocean. What are the, the end of life pathways that must, most plastic takes today? So most plastic today is going to end up in landfill, incineration, or uh, yeah, like you said, kind of worst case scenario, which is in our environment, in all the places that we don't want it to be. You know, the stats are pretty murky, actually, on exactly how much gets recycled. There's this big stat that sort of 9% of plastic gets recycled. But a lot of the ways these statistics are counted are sort of um, if the plastic is sent for recycling, it counts as recycled, when in reality, it may not actually be recycled. It might be sent to a totally different country where it might be burned or it might be landfilled. Um, and so getting exact data on how much plastic is recycled, how much goes to landfill, how much goes to incineration, and then how much ends up uh, just kind of in the environment is quite difficult to do. Uh, what we can say very, very safely is that the vast majority of this stuff is not ending up where we want it to be. So let's talk about what you're doing about this. So you have built a new process and a new um, enzyme or protein, I guess, that actually can take plastic waste and essentially eat it and convert it into chemicals. At least that's what I understand. Maybe articulate that a little more uh, professionally than I've just done. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty much what we do. Um, so enzymes, just to begin with, are these incredible little nanomachines um, that exist in nature. They enable all of these highly complex chemical reactions to happen in our body. Uh, they enable us to digest food. They enable plants to turn CO2 and water into oxygen and sugars. Um, and they really sort of make biology work. So in a similar way to our bodies converting uh, food into energy, we are developing plastic eating enzymes uh, that can take plastic and convert them into chemicals. And these are exactly the same chemicals that today we would make from fossil carbon. So what we can do is we can create an end of life solution for these unrecyclable plastics, the stuff that's ending up in landfill or incineration or in our natural environment. Uh, but by doing that, we can also create chemicals um, out the other end that have a substantially reduced carbon footprint compared to yeah, the incumbent methods of, of chemical production that we have today. And are these chemical outputs things that would then tend to be used for plastics? I, I'm curious how circular this becomes, or are, are they chemical outputs that would be used for other uh, processes like agriculture and, and whatnot? Absolutely. So we can make plastics from them. We might choose not to, though. Um, so these are like platform chemicals that are made today that are used in a ton of different industries. Yes, everything from agriculture to plastics manufacture, uh, coatings, lubricants, really sort of everything in between, even consumer products. And so what we're essentially doing is creating a more sustainable source of these chemicals. So things that are not derived from dead dinosaurs underground and doing so in a way where we can create the very same molecule that can feed all these different industries. Ultimately, what people would like to use them for is, is, is their choice. So walk me through an end-to-end, -end, you know, you get a bunch of plastic that's about to be end of life. You put them in some kind of large bioreactor and you get an output. That's a very simplistic drawing that I can do in my head, but maybe walk us through what that process actually looks like. That's essentially the process. So we take all these unrecyclable plastics. Um, in, in the first instance, we'll be looking at uh, 
a single type of plastic versus a mix. But in the future, we definitely want to explore uh, mixed plastics further. We take them, we shred them up into little flakes. Uh, we then put those into a, a big bioreactor. So the same thing that we use to brew beer. And then we use a, a novel form of fermentation called cell-free fermentation, uh, which uses only enzymes, uh, not uh, the cells that are living things that need very specialized conditions. Uh, we let that digest. And what we're left with then are the chemical products, which can be uh, sold as a mixed product or separated out into individual streams and then put on the market uh, just as any other chemical product would be. And, you know, most microbial uh, activity today, I think, is done with typically like a yeast or an E. coli or something like that as part of your magic sauce that you found alternative microbes to be able to do this with. So whilst we work with microbes in the lab, and we use microbes to actually produce the enzyme. Um, when it comes to the conversion process where we take the plastics and we turn them into chemicals, uh, there won't actually be a microbe present. It's only the enzyme on its own. And so that gives us uh, better scalability. That gives us uh, quite a lot of control over the process. Uh, the problem with microbes is that um, you know they're just like us. They can get infected with disease and all sorts of other things. And so if you have this big vat of microbes and you're putting in all these dirty plastics, who knows what you're going to be introducing, right? Uh, so to avoid the need to kind of clean every individual piece of plastic, we're going with just the, uh, just the enzyme. The other thing is that, um, you know, microbes are living things, right? They need to, they need to breathe. They need uh, energy to kind of keep their inner workings running. Enzymes are not living things. And so typically what you would see with a microbial process is you input your feedstock, maybe that's a sugar, say, and you'd lose quite a lot of that input uh, in the form of carbon dioxide from the microbes uh, running their kind of regular metabolism and uh, you know, needing to stay alive. So you'd actually end up with a lower tonnage of output than you would your sort of tonnage of input. We don't see that with enzymes because they don't need to be kept alive because they don't um, produce CO2 as part of their process. And so actually what we have is for every one ton of plastic that we put in, um, because of some very interesting chemistry that's happening, uh, we actually get potentially more than one ton of product out. So we get the benefits of the scalability, we get the benefits of those improved unit economics, and we get the benefits of not having a big vat full of infected microbes. And can you change the cocktail in order to um, create different types of chemicals? And maybe what are the, the initial sort of target outputs that you are building with this product line that you're delivering? Definitely. So, and, and we can dive into this into, uh, in more detail in a bit. Enzymes are programmable, they're tunable. Um, we've created a whole suite of tools to enable us to do that um, better than well other people have been able to do previously. And so we can tune these enzymes to break down certain plastic feedstocks we can tune them to produce uh, certain chemical outputs. Um, right now, uh, we're doing the work to understand, you know, what are the most uh, exciting applications for these chemicals as we scale. And so what's really cool is that in these different chemical markets, uh, there are different use cases at different scales. So as we increase the volume of our, of our process, of our technology, we can service different market segments. So we're really interested at the beginning of, of telling these awesome consumer stories. You know, could we partner with a large CPG to take their waste plastics and convert them back into like cleaning products or, or cosmetic products, which uh, a consumer can then take off of the shelf and say, wow, every time I'm taking this product off the shelf, I'm preventing, you know, a pound, two pounds of plastics from, from entering the ocean. So there's a cool opportunity to tell some really interesting consumer-facing stories at sort of the smaller scales. But as we scale the technology, ultimately, 
you know, we're not going to solve the plastic problem. We're not going to have a dramatic dent on the CO2 impact of uh, chemicals unless we're working at significant scales. So eventually we'll begin to move into the larger kind of bulk and volume chemical uh, markets, looking at sort of uh, plastics manufacturer and those types of areas too. And so if I think about the climate impact of, of this solution, I know we can talk in the future about a few other solutions you may have down the line, but I'm, what I'm hearing is the, you will have an impact on reducing the amount of plastic waste in the world, which is obviously a good environmental benefit um, in general for biodiversity and ecosystem health. And you will be able to more cheaply potentially produce chemicals uh, that today many of these chemicals are in themselves produced via fossil fuel or petrochemical, uh, pe basically petrochemical outputs. Um, and so the idea there is if you can do that more cheaply, then those chemicals can be produced from a barrel of oil today. You start to reduce the value and demand of the barrel of oil from a chemical perspective. And so when I, when I think of the, the broad impact on climate, there's the waste reduction side, which is the, the input part of your process, which may not have a direct climate benefit, but certainly has a biodiversity and waste reduction benefit. And then there's the output side, which is hopefully having a macroeconomic impact on the price of chemicals and reducing the efficacy of fossil fuel as a chemical feedstock. Am I capturing that correctly? Yes. Um, there's, there's a couple of extra things, actually. Um, so... On the input side, right, dealing with the plastic problem, yes, um, in an ideal world, we are preventing plastics from going to all of the wrong places. Um, I would actually define one of the wrong places as incineration, right? Like we're taking carbon and we're burning it and we're putting it into the atmosphere. Sure, we're generating energy from it, but there are some cleaner sources we can generate that energy from. Uh, in an ideal scenario, we are preventing uh, also the, the, the plastic going to incineration, but actually where the biggest reduction in CO2 and, and sort of the largest CO2 impact comes from is from the production of the chemicals themselves. So the way we make chemicals today is we, uh, at great expense, um, extract all of this fossil carbon from underground, right, in the form of oil and gas. We ship it all around the world and then we refine it. We use very high energy, uh, expensive, high pressure processes to break down these big oil molecules into kind of smaller building blocks that we can then make to use new things. We probably go through, you know, on average, maybe uh, you know, two or three uh, similar steps, depending on how complex and downstream the molecule is. And all of this is releasing uh, CO2 and other greenhouse gases as well. Then eventually you end up with the chemical product, which you can put onto the market. Um, and, and, and that's the way it works today. And um, with our process, with what we're working on at Epoch, we take this plastic waste that would otherwise, you know, end up in, in that incinerator. And we use very nice low energy enzymes, uh, right? Sort of uh, very environmentally friendly processes um, to convert that waste into those chemicals in a one-step process. So what we don't have are all of the emissions associated with the extraction and the refinement of this fossil carbon into all of these downstream chemicals for different applications. Um, and so what we actually see is that uh, even when we take into account the CO2 impact of producing the plastic in the first place, right? Uh, so ignoring the fact that it's going to waste, um, what we can see is a very uh, dramatic reduction on the order of about 75% in some quite conservative examples uh, on the CO2 equivalent of chemicals made from our process versus chemicals made from incumbent fossil-derived processes. Got it. Yeah, my mind at scale then goes to like comparing an oil refinery to a large scale brewery. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot less uh, emissions flowing out of the top of the brewery. 
So, you know, the last question I have about this particular product is, are there any unintended consequences that, you, you know, you may need to think about? I mean, you've got this enzyme that can eat plastic. Like, is there any biohazard risk or anything like that, you know, that you all have to pay attention to um, as you continue to build this and produce it at scale? Yeah, there was a show, I believe, in the 50s or 60s, well before I was around, called Doomwatch. Um, it was in the UK. Maybe it made its way over to the US. Um, I'm not sure. But essentially, one of the episodes was uh, these plastic-eating microbes, and you had planes falling from the sky and buildings collapsing and, and this kind of nightmare scenario. So that won't happen, definitely. Uh, we're not looking to release anything into, into the environment. And the beauty of enzymes as well is that they're not self-replicating, right? So we don't have this kind of runaway microbe that's just going to go all over the place. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, there's always going to be a little bit of, of waste generated from these processes, right? So the stuff that uh, didn't quite get converted in the reactor, but really these are kind of quite small-scale, non-hazardous things. So we're not anticipating that there are going to be any... Uh, any dramatic kind of uh, side effects of deploying this. Um, but yeah, definitely we'll, 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 we'll keep an eye out for any, uh, any runaway microbes. Fantastic. Let's talk about the bigger vision of, of Epoch. Um, the plastic product, I don't even know if the product itself has a name, um, but uh, you know, I guess, how did you come across this particular solution and what is the broader technology platform that you are developing for essentially protein engineering? Yeah, definitely. So how we came across this kind of first product um, was actually the sort of, uh, well, the reason why we founded the company. So I was uh, working on a school project during uh, my final year in high school, uh, looking at, okay, well, how can we get rid of all this plastic waste? Had sort of given it a lot of thought, had been quite sort of exposed to the plastic problem, uh, doing beach cleanups and, uh, you know, exploring the great outdoors and seeing a plastic bottle kind of left, right and center. I had dug into, you know, why we have this plastic problem. Of course, we have far too much production of it, but we also don't know what to do with all the stuff that's left over. Uh, part of the reason is is that technologically, it's it's very difficult to process. And part of the reason as well are, are the economics. It just, as we discussed, often doesn't really make sense to recycle plastic when you could just uh, extract and refine uh, fossil carbon in, into this material. So I knew from my biology background in school that an enzyme would be the kind of most efficient way to do a chemical reaction, hence why we exist today. And so I embarked on a, on a research project to go looking for plastic eating enzymes. Um, to kind of uh, cut a long story short, um, went out into nature, took a bunch of samples, did a lot of reading into the literature, uh, and the, the early results were very promising. Um, it was kind of at that moment, though, that I remembered, yeah, I don't have a PhD and probably need to find somebody a lot smarter than me to, to help me take that forward. So um, through a couple of mutual connections, uh, I got in touch with my now co-founder, um, Douglas Kell, who's uh, this kind of world leader in, in systems and synthetic biology here in the UK. And we got working on developing these plastic eating enzymes. What we sort of came to realize, though, well, what I came to realize was that Doug had spent the last... I'm just going to interrupt you and say that, you know, in high school, I was really good at Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you clearly took high school to a different level than me. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I got uh, plenty, of, uh, plenty of Mario Kart in as well in between. <laughs> I had to wait for the experiments to run, right? Got to entertain yourself somehow. But uh, yeah, when I, when I started working with Doug, when I finished up school and was kind of able to uh, to focus on 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 building this project, um, what I sort of came to learn was that he'd spent the last uh, twenty years of his career, and I think over now ten million pounds of government funding, developing 
all of these new tools for, for designing biology, for making sense of these incredibly complex systems that make up life. And I was talking to him and we were discussing our strategies for how we were going to make uh, these enzymes with the right techno-economics to really to make it at scale. And he started listing off all these incredible ways that things were going to be done. And uh, this was kind of in, in stark contrast to things that I'd read about before, about evolving and designing enzymes to do different things. And so what we sort of realized in that moment is actually we could take advantage of all of this research and build this really compelling technology platform for designing enzymes. Um, first apply and validate that capability on, on this first application, right? Designing uh, enzymes to, to transform the unrecyclable, uh, but then looking at biology as this whole tool to uh, really solve some of the biggest environmental problems that, that the world is facing, right? Um, Biology is the original circular economy. It takes carbon from the sky, puts it underground, puts it back up into the sky, uh, converts all sorts of different uh, substrates into new things um, and has the potential to, you know, I think we can look to nature to solve some of the biggest challenges that we face. And, and how did you two meet? Uh, what was the, the pathway to, to finding uh, your co-founder and, and, and deciding to collaborate on this? So, um, Doug spent some time working with my great uncle in the early 90s on applying uh, machine learning to biological systems uh, and when talking to uh, to my great uncle Mike um, about uh, uh, about you know who I could work with to take this forward he said oh you should you should definitely speak to Doug and or gave me rather his his email address reached out to him and I remember distinctly actually I uh, sent him the email told him about what I've been working on and I uh, got an email about three minutes later back from him. I, I don't know how he wrote such a long email in three minutes, but I uh, remember kind of going into my English class uh, first thing at, at sort of 8 a.m. the next morning and just kind of sitting there tapping the table thinking, oh man, what am I doing in this English class? Like I want to be using biology to, to try and solve these big problems. So yeah, I remember that uh, very vividly. That's amazing. And so, so now you've got, you know, this, this hypothesis of, hey, we should be able to use biology to, to solve this plastic problem. And you've found Doug, who is this machine learning expert who understands protein sequencing. Um, I, I don't know if that was his area of expertise, but at some point, those two combined, and you ended up both using this knowledge to find the right set of proteins and enzymes for the plastic problem. But then you've also built this whole technical layer underneath that you can use to identify other solutions uh, for other big global problems. So maybe help us understand sort of what that machine learning side of what you've built is capable of doing. Definitely. So um, I think really the easiest way to, to begin explaining this is to kind of go back to what Doug has focused on for, for his whole career. So a lot of scientists, when they get started, they'll, they'll focus on kind of a favorite organism or a favorite protein, and, and they'll spend like their whole lives looking at this one very specific thing. Um, you know, Doug, after he finished his PhD, was, was given the opportunity to, to decide kind of which direction he wanted to go in and really kind of pick the path for his career. And he decided actually... I don't think I want to focus on, on one thing. And instead, I want to develop enabling tools so that scientists can focus on that one thing, right? Let's begin to find new ways to measure these biological systems. But let's also look at new ways to design these biological systems. Uh, he really spent, well, he's 40 years into his career now. So he's spent all 40 of those really working at the intersection of all these different disciplines. And he calls himself a, a systems biologist. 
Uh, so he works with the machine learning engineers, he works with the data scientists, he works with the uh, synthetic biologists doing the actual wet lab work, as well as the, the organism engineers and, and really everything in between. You know, during uh, the kind of 90s and, and 2000s, um, you know, the US government spent uh, $3 billion on the Human Genome Project. And uh, suddenly, there were all these new ways to measure and observe biological systems at scale. And yeah, all one needs to do is look at the, the cost of DNA sequencing over the last 20 years to see just how dramatically that has changed. And so that's enabled all these new tools for, for looking at and observing these systems at scale. And at the same time, we've had this whole revolution in the way that we uh, synthesize and build parts in biology and um, new molecular biology tools, uh, CRISPR-Cas technology, you know, DNA synthesis, all these different things coming together. So we now find ourselves in a position where we can design and build biology at scale, um, but then we can also observe that biology and we can begin to kind of look at patterns in the data. It also just so happens that computing has become really powerful and really cheap over you know, the last few decades. And we're seeing all these new machine learning architectures uh, enabling us to deal with very, very complex data and biological data can be very, very complex. So what Doug has developed and what we've now kind of taken forward in the company are a set of proprietary tools uh, that enable us to design uh, novel features in biological systems that we believe will have a high chance of succeeding. That all happens in a computer. And then we take those designs and we build them in our lab using high throughput automation and a bunch of really cool techniques uh, that, that the scientists will be able to explain better than I can. Um, once we've kind of built all those different designs, we test them and we see how well they work, whether that's for producing an enzyme or whether that's looking at uh, well, how quickly that enzyme can break down the plastic. We take all of that data and we use then uh, machine learning to find the kind of underlying patterns, the underlying rules within that data to then look at the next set of designs that we should look at in the lab. Uh, we'll design them in the computer, test them in the lab, learn from them again, and repeat that process until we have something that does exactly what we want it to. And that's a generic set of tools, right? So we're first applying this to our, our plastic eating enzymes. But in the future, you know, we see biology as a, as a platform tool to create solutions to all these different problems. And so approaching biology as, as this kind of programmable tool and creating methods that enable us to uh, program it to do different things means that we can apply this to, to all sorts of different applications, everything from you know, carbon capture, sequestration, uh, looking at sort of more environmentally friendly, more effective fertilizers, uh, looking at how we can you know, bioremediate all the kind of horrible uh, chemicals that we put out into the environment. Really, I believe that we're quite limited by our imagination at the moment. And in the same time that you know, those at the invention of the, the time of the invention of the transistor couldn't, you know, uh, anticipate that we'd be recording a podcast today or looking at memes on our phone after uh, using that technology. I don't think we can really look out into the future and say, oh, well, you know, we're going to be doing X, Y, and Z, um, utilizing all of this new technology that we've developed on the biology side. So I'm just very excited to see where all that goes. And I hope that Epoch can be a really big part of that. And, you know, I think you've just articulated really, really well you know, people ask what's different this time around with climate tech versus, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And honestly, I think a big part of the difference is the advancement of other compute technology that helps us solve problems faster, right? It's so as opposed to everything being just done in a lab and having to have humans understand the outputs of the different hypotheses and assumptions that you're trying to develop in the lab, 
which ultimately results in slower product development cycles and maybe building one product over the life of a company. You have built now a software platform leveraging the latest in you know, AI and machine learning to rapidly interpret experiment results and help you get to solutions faster. Um, and like that, that is, that's not technology that has anything to do with climate. That's just advancement in compute power that is enabling you to solve these climate problems faster. So, does that resonate? Yeah, exactly. So all of the novel stuff that we're doing on the biology side, you know, the things that scientists and robots are doing in the lab combined with all of the software capabilities that you mentioned, these things didn't exist 10 years ago. The ability to do things in the lab today are so dramatically different from, you know, even five years ago. And, you know, recently in the world of biology uh, in 2020, uh, DeepMind released AlphaFold. They solved this 50-year problem of how does a protein fold? And we're only just beginning to see the implications of this. That is one tool. That is one massive kind of multiplier for what, for what our capabilities are. Uh, CRISPR back in 2013, massive multiplier for what our capabilities are. And so what we're seeing in specifically biology, um, which is then enabling us to, to apply it to these big climate problems, is these kind of you know, steady declines in cost, right? Driven by Moore's law in, in the cost of computing and DNA synthesis and DNA sequencing. But also then these, these multipliers, these, these quantum leaps of these, these new technologies that come on board and enable us to look at things in a, in a totally different way that, you know, previously would have taken decades, now I'll take a week in the lab. I mean, that's the really exciting thing. So the development cycles are rapidly sped up. Uh, they're still not as fast as they could be, uh, given that it, it's hardware and, and not software. But I think that enables us to create solutions and have a higher chance of successfully scaling, uh, that have a higher chance of, of actually effectively impacting the problems that we're going out to solve. These are things that simply didn't exist as little as 10 years ago. Exactly. So you have these capabilities now at your fingertips. Let's maybe talk about the business model of the company. How do you decide what projects to do? Are these coming inbound to you? Are they outbound where, you know, you're coming up with a solution that you think, you know, you might have a buyer for the the output of your process? What does that look like to you so far, maybe with the plastic eating product? Uh, and then maybe talk about a little bit about the roadmap of other things that you're you're experimenting with today and how you're doing the customer discovery and customer development around those. Definitely. So, as a business, we're very, very focused on owning all the IP associated with what we develop and taking that forward to the extent that it makes sense. So if we look at the very kind of specific application of plastics, now within that, there is so much optionality. There are loads of different types of plastics. There are loads of different types of chemicals. Uh, and we could build a huge business in that vertical alone. And, and I'm really excited to see where we can where we can take that technology. The way we're thinking about it today um, is kind of in, in, in two really basic phases. So uh, because it's our ambition to own all of the all of the IP and all of the technology associated with this, uh, we're going to develop the enzymes. We're going to develop the means of producing those enzymes. So we we program microbes to basically make a lot of enzyme and, and drive down the cost of that catalyst. Um, and then we will scale uh, the first process, converting uh, one type of plastic waste into um, you know, a limited number of chemicals that we can then sell. And we'll take that to probably about the kind of 10 to 20,000 ton range. Uh, so similar to kind of a Soligen's Bioforge for, for those who are familiar. Um, it's at that point where we say, okay, well, we're not a chemical facility operating business. That's not really what we want to be. Ultimately, we want to become an intellectual property business. And so what we then have at that point is we have 
all the process engineering drawings and, and, and know-how. We have all of the biology and the intellectual property and, and proprietary uh, strains and samples around that. And then we can go to a bunch of different customers and a bunch of in different industries and say, okay, well, you know, you big multinational chemical company are interested in making your chemicals more sustainably because you think it's important. There might be a policy incentive. Hey, it might just be that this is a really cheap way to make chemicals, um, which is the case here. Um, we'll then license this out to you. We can monetize that relationship through ongoing license fees, uh, catalyst sales, um, royalty payments on the chemicals, uh, the custom design of the biology. So maybe they're interested in a very specific type of plastic to a very specific uh, type of output. And we can utilize our, our biodesign platform to fine tune the enzymes to do exactly that for them. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity for monetizing both pieces of technology there. Um, so we'll scale that up ourselves, then we'll go out and license it. As we think about kind of customer discovery within within the plastic space and the conversations we're having around there, um, really we're engaging with the full kind of uh, plastics value chain, right? So everybody from uh, well, the carbon being taken out of the ground to the plastic producers, the formers, the CPGs, the supermarkets, uh, the waste managers, and yeah, and really sort of everybody along that value chain. We're in a really unique position where we can save money for those who have a lot of plastic waste, and then we can make money for those who want sustainable chemicals. Um, and we're looking at a, a wide variety of different applications on, on kind of both sides of, of that equation. And um, as we think about uh, other products, um, I think focus is really important. Just to make sure I understand what you've said so far, what I'm hearing you say is you're going to absorb some early CapEx to build initial, essentially prototype facilities where you can take inputs and create outputs. And you may buy and sell those inputs and outputs to start to prove the model, but ultimately you want to prove the unit economics of that process line and then find essentially a buyer who would license the IP of that process line and then go scale it out themselves to where you're not investing in large-scale CapEx, you're essentially receiving license royalties from the process that they'll develop going forward. Is that, am I generally understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. So we'll take on earlier CapEx um, burden in order to secure IP and, and frankly, to keep control over execution risk as well. It's very easy for a very motivated business unit manager at a large chemical company to move on to another job and somebody not so motivated to replace them so that in the future, we can capture more of the upside and scale faster through uh, through licensing. Exactly. Great. All right. So now maybe then how do you get to N plus one and N plus two of your product line? Yeah. So we need to think about this strategically. Um, we need to bring a lot of focus to this uh, to this process. So uh, we want to keep all of the products that we're creating underneath the, the kind of make the make the earth a better place uh, umbrella. And so that can mean so many different things. Right now, uh, we're very interested in leveraging our core capabilities. The two things we're really good at, which is making great enzymes, but then also uh, specifically looking at making great enzymes uh, to degrade plastics, which is quite a difficult technical challenge. Uh, so what we're looking at currently is. Uh, selectively taking on some uh, adjacent opportunities, uh, beginning to look at the textile space, right? Tons and tons of waste there, arguably in many ways harder to deal with than some of the kind of regular post-consumer, uh, you know, mushroom trays and, and yogurt pots that we're putting into the uh, that we're putting into the recycling bin. And the vast majority of that is is burned, as far as I understand. Exactly. Like the vast majority of textile waste is burned. It, yeah. yeah, or ending up in, in really some place that you don't want it to. Um, I mean, it's... Uh, frankly, hugely understudied issue. I think, you know, 
until we began to dig into it, we didn't even realize how big of a problem it truly was. And it's pretty scary. Not to mention the, the sort of chemical runoff and frankly, the, the human rights issues involved in that industry. So we want to look at adjacent uh, solutions within the plastics space, kind of leveraging our, our core capabilities, but eventually branching that out into, okay, well, we've scaled our first product. Uh, we're substantially revenue generating from that. And we've got a really kind of clear view of, of where that goes. Uh, we can begin to now look at uh, leveraging all of our technology to develop products in the spaces that we think are really important. And these are spaces that we might see today. So in how we produce food and how we, remediate uh, nasty stuff from the environment. Uh, but, you know, as I mentioned, I think over the coming five, 10 years, we're going to see all these different advances in biology unlock applications that frankly just weren't possible before. Um, and so certainly, you know, we need to be thinking about what the future applications could be uh, beyond the ones that we, we think are possible today. Fantastic. And let's maybe, you know, you talked about how ultimately you don't need to, to have capital for large scale CapEx. Let's talk about how you're thinking about financing this business. So, you know, you announced uh, recently your, your initial seed round, which I believe was $11 million led by Lower Carbon. You were, we, were, we were honored to be included in that at MCJ. Uh, so MCJ Collective was a participant in that um, and Box Group and, and a number of other funds. Um, what are you using this initial capital for and how do you view the capital needs of the business going forward? Yeah, well, um, first of all, delighted to have you guys on the cap table. This first round is going towards construction of, of some purpose-built R&D facilities um, on new labs to enable us to scale the science and start to invest in some new areas, uh, grow the team so we can, we can service all of that R&D need uh, and ultimately improve the performance of these biocatalysts so we can begin to meet our unit economic requirements for, for scaling the thing. You know, we'd like to sort of reach uh, a pretty reasonable scale within our labs for the process with this money. And then um, based on the data from that, we can go out and look at building the kind of pilot facilities and larger scale ones from there. And so to date, we've we financed predominantly from, from venture capital. We've been fortunate enough to make use of quite a substantial amount of both European and UK government funding as well, which has been non-dilutive, um, always very helpful. And in the future, we're looking to, to continue kind of leveraging those two sources um, as we get clearer ideas of the sort of risk profile and um, unit economics of our process, we can begin to look at uh, different sort of instruments for bringing in money. My, my hope is that essentially these facilities are not going to be funded entirely by venture capital. We can find uh, sort of less diluting sources in order to finance that, that scale up. Our, um, our CapEx requirements are actually not enormous when we build our scale up plan and, and, and when we look at sort of the numbers involved and the, and the types of equipment uh, evolved, it's, it's not as uh, eyebrow raising as, as one might expect. But certainly if there are ways we can, um, we can bring on non-dilutive capital to, to meet that need, then we're looking at all those options. The last question I have is, is really about, about you. Like you started building this in high school, you dropped out of university to actually turn this into a commercial endeavor. I, hopefully the listeners agree with me. Like I've been very impressed by our conversation. You seem wise beyond your years. So how have you um, built your knowledge of, you know, building out a company that has such an audacious mission and, you know, handling both the grand vision of it and the nuance of day-to-day -day operations? What's been your process for essentially training yourself as a CEO on the job? By doing, by making mistakes and by learning from those mistakes, uh, hopefully as, as quickly and painlessly as possible. I've been fortunate enough to have some really, really smart people who've uh, been frankly generous enough to give me some time and, and to sort of lend their ear on uh, questions that I have. You know, I, I've, we've built a really, really exceptional team at Epoch. Um, I'm 
absolutely inspired by these people that I come to work with every day, honored to kind of, you know, be in their presence and be working on this project together. And, you know, these are people from uh, very, very deep technical backgrounds that can really sort of, you know, help the non-scientists get uh, their head around, you know, the very, very complex, difficult science that we're doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, They come from, you know, commercial backgrounds, IP licensing, the chemicals industry. You know, our chief people officer has, this is is her third startup. Uh, She's, you know, grown teams from 40 to 400. She's seen the exits, the the acquisitions, the, and everything in between. And so um, we've been lucky enough to, to be able to build that team and, um, Growing up, I always wanted to be in a job where like, I was learning something new every single day. And sometimes the learning curve is very, very steep. Uh, it certainly was at the beginning and, and continues to be at times. But I just really enjoy being challenged to, to, to try and think about things in different ways. I find that uh, really fulfilling. And yeah, I'm lucky enough to have found myself in a role where I get to do that every day with really smart people and work on uh, a really inspiring goal. Fantastic. And, you know, for anyone listening who is inspired by what you're doing, um, whether interested in potentially working with you or partnering with you or whatever it may be, maybe give some pointers. What kind of what kind of roles are you looking to fill right now? If there are potential inbound business development interests, uh, you know, what, how should people lean in uh, to what you're building? Uh, maybe just to help listeners understand how to engage if they're so inclined. Well, we raised some money. We've got some exciting new labs and offices uh, we're hiring. Uh, so that's across a variety of technical and non-technical roles. You can see our, our open job positions at uh, epochbiodesign.com. Uh, even if none of those positions are like a direct fit for you, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for smart people to, to hop on the boat. Inbound business development, we'd love to hear about that. You know, we're always looking for new opportunities uh, to apply our technology in, in the plastic space and then sort of the broader biodesign space, uh, looking at sort of partnership opportunities and, and, and all sorts. So equally, please um, uh, get in touch through our website there. And more generally, uh, we're very happy to have a conversation with investors, with advisors, uh, looking to get um, a smart on the space uh, as possible beyond what we already know. So uh, welcome all conversations on that front. Jacob, anything else I should have asked? No, not at all. Um, it's, been, uh, it's been great to be on here. Well, thank you for your time. And uh, I enjoyed learning a, a ton more about what you're doing. And uh, hopefully everyone here did as well. Good luck with what you're building. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.